Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. This is episode 47. This will be the Son of Sam part 1. Over our next few episodes we'll feature talk about the origins and behavior of serial killers. A great case study on this topic is a serial killer known as the Son of Sam. He's one of the most interesting in a morbid way I guess subjects to look at because so much is known about his childhood and in this episode we will dive into that childhood and his early adulthood and discuss and analyze some of his experiences and behaviors that would go on to make him one of america's most infamous killers but before we get to the episode let's get through the business if you would like to get updates about what the podcast is up to please like and follow the true blue crime productions facebook page more information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. Finally, if you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. And before we get into the actual story here, again, this is going to be a breakdown. We're definitely covering the case of uh, the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, and all of his crimes. So it's going to be kind of a multi-approach episode where we're going to talk about serial killers in general because I would like to continue to cover some of the more infamous ones. I've got plans to cover uh, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, uh, the Green River Killer, and BTK, and, and I'll get to all of them eventually here down the road. But before I really dive into some of these serial killers, I wanted to have kind of a base knowledge uh, for my listenership uh, breaking down some of the stuff that we'll be looking for in regards to serial killers. So, uh, And we've already covered a couple serial killers on this podcast. We covered Robert Baker out of Alaska, who is the Butcher Baker, and Michel Fournier, the Ogre of the Ardennes out of France and Belgium. And those are two of the more well-known cases out of North American Europe that we've discussed so far. And as I mentioned, i got plans to talk about many more, and I wanted to talk about the son of sam and i figured now would be a good time to break down what is a serial killer and some of the common attributes they share the fbi defines a serial killer as an offender who commits two or more unlawful killings in separate events now this is the most recent definition that was adopted in 2005 and it supersedes all the other definitions because the previous definitions were somewhat vague and when i say that depending on whether you went with the FBI definition or different criminal psychology organizations that were trying to define it, some of them had three or more killings was a requirement for a serial killer. Some even had requirements in regards to uh, killings within specific categories, such as whether they were same gender same race style killings and so the fbi in 2005 said we're just going to make this simple it's got to be two or separate unlawful killings in separate events Uh, there's also used to be the term we used was a cooling off period so there had it couldn't be that you you know went to one house shot somebody walked next door shot and killed somebody else and now you're a serial killer there had to be that time period between events so now they just call them separate events and again it would have to be something where you've removed yourself completely from the first crime and then committed another one so so it removed all the vagueness and just kind of said if you've killed two people in two separate events you are a serial killer and now while this definition does make a lot of offenders by definition serial killers The fascination with serial killers usually revolves around those who create a pattern of killing over an extended period of time, and they often have a similar victim type and predate on that type in a similar manner. So while the FBI might define many people as serial killers, most of the time it's going to be those basically by volume and time span 
the number of people that are killed or in certain cases it doesn't even have to be the number of people killed but it's how they're killed and then often cases we'll see it here we'll see if we cover the zodiac if i do an unsolved podcast it'll be there's communication sometimes with uh, law enforcement or the media and so while as i mentioned there are a lot of uh, serial killers by definition the reason we are know more about these well-known serial killers is they tend to be the subject of the most post-arrest investigation research and theoretical documentation and it's for that reason that when we look at serial killers in general we look for certain shared traits that have been discovered by looking at the lives of these monsters and i say that because you might find you know we just talked about uh louise rice the um killer grandma and by definition she is a serial killer she killed two people in two separate events so by the fbi's definition she's a serial killer however yes we looked at her past and there were some mental health issues within her family but she's probably not going to have a similar background to somebody like jeffrey dahmer or in this case uh, david berkowitz because her crimes even though they were serial killer by definition were more out of desperation in regards to her gambling uh, habits and the demons that came along with that she wasn't she wasn't killing for pleasure or she wasn't going out to seek out uh, people to kill for pleasure and i i didn't mention it in the kilogram episode but when police watched the security video after she killed pamela hutchinson in florida it was said in the research that they could actually see her on video after she left the condo when they assumed that she had killed pamela she was and she had transferred her luggage from her vehicle to Pamela's vehicle. There's a period in which she looked like she had a total breakdown in the parking lot. And not that this garners her any sympathy or anything along those lines, but it definitely shows that these were acts of desperation that she necessarily didn't want to do, especially in the case of Pamela. I, I can't speak of the dynamics between her and her husband, uh, Dave, but this woman she befriended and then killed out of desperation it definitely seemed like it did affect her immediately after the killing and that's not something that most we're going to see with most of these serial killers most of their frustration or emotion is going to come out when they fail to kill somebody so again there's we could look at every serial killer by that fits the definition of the fbi but what we tend to focus on are these serial killers that kill for pleasure of some sort, whether it be the pleasure of power, pleasure of sex, whatever it might be. And they kill multiple people, you know, five, six plus over the course of a long period of time and tend to focus on the same victim type in each of their cases. And when we look at the childhood slash upbringing slash young adulthood, that's where we'll likely see more similarities between those individuals. Then if we look at the childhood upbringing, young adult of, of somebody like Louise Rice. Now, in order to look at the background of serial killers of this caliber, we must look at both life events and displayed behaviors. And there's a big difference between the two. The life events are everything that happened to them, and the displayed behaviors are everything that they did that we can that we know about or can prove that they did. So for example, the McDonald Triangle looks at common aberrant behaviors displayed by serial killers in their youth or throughout their life. The three parts of the triangle are bedwetting, fire starting, and cruelty to animals. When looking for these behaviors, we are not concerned with why they are occurring, just simply if they are occurring and at what level and frequency. However, for life events or behaviors, we look at specific and significant occurrences that have the propensity to change someone and these include any form of trauma so that may be physical mental emotional and or sexual and the length severity and frequency of the trauma and this can either be experienced trauma or witness trauma and it's also going to include life-changing injuries especially things like major head injuries that are also measured in strength and frequency so again when we break this down we're not only looking for those behaviors that are likely a result of 
trauma, we're actually looking for the source of the trauma, but it's two separate things. So when we recognize a traumatic event, we can log it that way. When we, when we see behavior that they're performing, we can log that as well. And the final factor we will often look at in these cases is where we cover a serial killer and we have the background information about them is the environment they grew up in. And this is, did they suffer from hunger due to poverty? Were they exposed to drugs or alcohol at a young age? Or did they go to a prestigious school? And it's very important to note that just because someone shows behavior consistent with serial killers and had a traumatic childhood or had brain injuries, it does not predetermine them to be a serial killer. There's plenty of people, difficult childhoods, who become healthy adults. But when we look at the majority of high-profile serial killers, we see patterns of shared characteristics, and it's worth mentioning them when we analyze their childhoods. Now, the offender in this episode we talked about is the son of Sam, David Berkowitz. And we're going to discuss his upbringing, his crimes, and how they affected New York City in the late 70s, as well as his capture and all we've learned about him in the past 40 years. Now, this episode is just going to focus on his upbringing and the very beginning of, of his major crimes. Uh, we'll discuss the actual crimes themselves, the murders, um, in the next episode. And David Berkowitz was born Richard David Falco on June 1st, 1953 in Brooklyn, New York. His birth mother, Elizabeth Broder, gave him up for adoption within a week of his birth. His biological father, Joseph Kleinman, was married to another woman and had been having a multi-year affair with Elizabeth Broder. It's likely that the married Kleinman made Broder give up her son in an effort to keep their affair secret and possibly with the promises to continue their relationship if she agreed to the plan. And Broder had been married before to a man named Tony Falco, but their marriage had ended over a decade before David was born. Still, she named her son Richard David Falco before giving him up for adoption. And so we'll focus on this just for a little bit. This is the information that I got. There are a couple, depending on where you look, small differences in, in the source material on this, but it's pretty well accepted that this is the story uh, between his birth mother and his birth father. It's implied a lot of places that his uh, birth father, who was married, made his birth mother give him up for adoption. And she complied. She was a, um, Elizabeth was a poor, I believe, waitress. And so she didn't have a lot of money, probably not able to provide a living for this child, especially when you consider the costs associated with raising a child and eventually the daycare and everything along those lines. So she ends up giving up for adoption, which is going to be a major contributing factor in this story. But it wasn't long before the infant was adopted by a middle-aged couple with no children of their own. And the couple named Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz lived in the Bronx and decided to rename the child Richard David Falco uh, with the name David Richard Berkowitz. So they just changed the the order of the middle and the first name and then gave the child their own family last name. And the Berkowitzes owned a hardware store and were considered a middle-class family. And while some sites would say David had a normal childhood, according to a study done by students at Radford University, there are some childhood life events worth mentioning. So I found this great study by these, these students at Radford University that broke it down in like an Excel spreadsheet version of everything that was going on in, in David's childhood. And this is by far the most information I've had about any serial killer. And it's why I decided to pair or look at serial killers and their upbringing with uh, David Berkowitz's story just because there is so much information out there about him and about his childhood and we're going to see as we go through uh, the next several minutes here of breaking down his childhood all of these events I talked about and and we'll take breaks every once in a while just to kind of highlight some of the the points that that we talked about before this as kind of those markers as quote-unquote danger signs of what's to come. 
So the first time that they really have something documented is in 1958. David's five years old and he was slapped in the face by his mother, Pearl, for coming home with sand in his hair. And it was said this is a result of some of the girls he was David was playing with at the playground were bullying him. And it said he returned to the park and hit one of the girls with a toy gun. And so we're looking at cause and effect in several different ways here. He's being bullied by girls, goes home, is physically abused by a woman, his mother, and then he returns that physical abuse onto the girls that were bullying him in the first place. And this is all at five years old. So he's developing these mental behavioral patterns of physical violence and it's, it's associating it with, with women, at least in this instance. And it's also noted that he began to take showers with his father at this age and was once brought to a public beach and his mother made him shower in the woman's locker room amongst naked women. And a year later, he would still be doing this and noticed how when a man walked into the woman's locker room on accident, all the women panicked. So at, you know, when we're talking about five, six years old, there's a lot of brain development, social behavioral development going on at this point in the brain. And so we've already talked about he's got violence with women. Now the, the showering with his father, a lot of kids at a certain age, usually around three or four years old, I guess, they, they sometimes they don't want to do baths anymore and they want to do showers. So showering with a parent isn't abnormal per se. It didn't say the age at which this ended. It just said that it began at age five. And I think that was more of just a, a notation uh, of something, not necessarily truly a danger sign, but he's, in addition to showering with his father, he's now going to be showering in the woman's locker room, which again, does happen with usually toddler age or, or very young boys will sometimes go. Now, most places nowadays have the the family um, locker rooms with with privacy showers for families or family bathrooms for for this exact reason if a woman is with a, a younger male five years old they're not exposed to naked members of the opposite sex but it was important that the last parts talk about how he would notice that when this man walked into the woman's locker room there was an immediate reaction by the women so I again I don't know if that was noted because this is something in his brain saying he doesn't belong here because somebody like him a biological male walking into the the locker room is causing alarm or whether it was an issue as I think the students mentioned that it's maybe a power issue or he sees that one man walking into this locker room filled with women can cause such a panic now, at age seven, he starts playing baseball. He scores a 118 on his IQ test, so he's considered above average intelligence. He's definitely not the you know Unabomber level intelligent, uh, Einstein level intelligence, um, but he's obviously extremely intelligent. Um, but at the same time, he's hit by a car and suffered head injuries. Now he's gonna recover from these head injuries and it said then he ran into a wall and suffered more head injuries. And I don't know if that was correlated to the baseball, like he was playing a game and you know, wasn't looking and ran into a wall or whether he did this on purpose, but basically at age seven, he sustains two major head injuries. And at this age, he's also told by his adoptive parents that, that he is adopted, although he will be told a story that his birth mother died and I don't during childbirth and I don't know what they told him about his birth father maybe just that he wasn't in the picture or something along those lines or maybe he had died as well but basically at age seven David now knows that these are not his biological parents they're his adoptive parents and, and this again adopted adoptions happen all the time adopted kids find out they're adopted all the time that alone does not make them serial killers, does not make them violent, dangerous people. It just, again, we're, we're compiling all the stuff that's going on in, in David's young life to kind of paint a picture as to his mental, physical, emotional well-being. Now, at age eight, he's, it said he's hit again in the head, this time by a pipe, and he suffers a large gash on his forehead. And he also watches a girl die after being hit by a car. 
and so this would be you know in the early 60s and we're gonna see this kind of come up again and again and now granted he's living in New York at the time in Bronx so I'm guessing just that many people and vehicles and everything he's he's gonna see some stuff more so than a kid who grows up in a small town but this is gonna be a recurring issue here now despite his intelligence he starts to lose interest in school around the elementary school age area and in fourth grade it says he was absent for 28 days and was bullied by classmates for being overweight and the absent for 28 days thing makes me believe that he was avoiding school and it also makes me believe that his parents are probably enabling this it was something where he was either faking illness and parents know when your child's sick and when they're not sick and Every once in a while, there's nothing wrong with providing an elementary school age kid or middle or high school age kid a, a mental day off. Uh, just there's a lot of stress socially and educationally from the schools. But 28 days in a year, either there was some major sickness going on that they didn't discuss, or he's avoiding school at this point. And to be able to avoid school for 28 days, you have to have to have your parents permission in elementary school and so it's likely that his parents were kind of enabling him to avoid these social issues and at age 10 he's much bigger than the other kids and continues to get bullied for his weight he again sees another fatal car accident so he sees one at eight and he's going to see one at 10 this time it's a girl and her mother that die after being hit by a car so now he's watched three females die after getting hit by vehicles He's also said that he slept in his parents' bed at this age, and it's said that his parents had sexual intercourse in the bed while he was sharing the bed with them. Now, it didn't say whether he was awake or asleep during this, but regardless, 10 years old is pretty old to be sleeping in your parents' bed, and the fact that they're going to have sexual intercourse with their child in the bed, there's, there's going to be some, some long-standing issues with that. Now, he's upset with his parents at age 11 because he's claiming monsters were out to get him and he needed to sleep with a light on in his room. And within a year, he's setting hundreds of fires and neighbors and relatives described David as a bully. He was also called a difficult child and they believed him to be spoiled by his parents. His adoptive parents did seek help from a psychotherapist, but the extent of any mental health intervention is unknown. So he's got these quote-unquote monsters out to get him at age 11 and I don't know if this is he reached some point where his parents wouldn't let him sleep in the bed anymore and they were making him sleep in his room and at age 11 he's trying to manipulate them by claiming there's monsters out to get him I don't know if this is the beginning of some mental health issues for him uh, related to this and it's saying at this point that he's got a difficult that he's a difficult child i think between the issues with the bullying but he's claiming to be bullied but other people are saying he's the bully and that we often see too is is kids who pick on other kids will claim that they're being picked on and it's not to say that there aren't kids out there that get bullied absolutely they do and especially for things like their weight but it's hard sometimes to do the chicken and the egg argument for these things where is David picking on other kids and then they're turning around and picking on him for being overweight or is he being picked on for being overweight and he's choosing to pick to then turn and bully on other kids it's it's kind of a hard thing to see but we definitely have you know some emotional and social damage going on here as well and we're starting to see by age 13 we're going to start to see some real negative behavior we've already seen the the fire starting, um, mentioning he set hundreds of fires. We don't know about bedwetting, but being that he's sleeping in his parents' bed at 10 years old, I have to imagine that there's some level of issue going on with his sleeping at night. I'm gonna assume that he's wetting the bed, although there wasn't anything in there that said anywhere that he was, but at age 13, he kills his mother's pet parakeet named Pudgy. And he did this by putting cleaning fluid in its drinking container and the death is going to take three weeks. And it's later surmised that he does this because he was jealous of the attention and love that his mother gave to the bird and he wanted all of her love and attention to himself. 
and he spends a lot of his free time killing insects by the thousands by burning them and then using rubber cement on them and it's said at age 13 he witnesses a boy fall from a bus and die so in the course of five years he's witnessed four people dying which is witness trauma for sure he's experienced these head injuries he's experienced bullying uh, he's fire starting and he's torturing animals and he's using death to separate animals and something that he's you know feels jealous towards and it's said at age 13 he's you know being raised the Berkowitzes are are Jewish and so it's said at age 13 he celebrates his bar mitzvah at a local temple and despite this being a celebration he has no friends attend and you know I'm not Jewish but from everything that I understand and this is based mainly on movies and TV so as much as I say you shouldn't base things on movies and TVs, I guess is where I get my information from. Um, you know, it's, this bar mitzvah is supposed to be a, a very big event. It's supposed to include a lot of friends and family. It's supposed to be, a, again, a lot of people coming together to celebrate this this boy turning into this man. And he has no friends attend, which is telling you where his social structure is. He's a loner. He's has issues making friends he had you know he's taking things out on small animals he's starting fires it's just everything as we mentioned before his childhood is pointing towards there's going to be trouble down the road and at age 14 his adoptive mother pearl dies from breast cancer and she'd been battling this breast cancer for some time but neither of his parents told him so this was a complete shock to him when he died and and i see the arguments both ways i can see if you're a kid and you learn that your mom has a terminal illness and she's gonna die in you know several months to a year or whatever it might be or even years you have to live with the fact that that your mother is sick and she's dying and there's nothing you can do about it and that would be difficult but there's also the difficulty of living your life as if your mother's going to be there for the rest of your for the majority of the rest of your life and then one day finding out she's passed away from this disease she's had for a while so it's going to be a shock but he's going to again witness another woman die and this time someone close to him and by 15 he was failing most of his classes in high school and his teachers would say that he was intelligent, so he could do the work. He just was choosing not to do the work. So it wasn't so much that he couldn't learn. It's that he didn't want to do the stuff that required him to get the passing grades. And he does start to ask out girls on dates. And apparently he was able to hang out with some girls, but he couldn't get himself a steady girlfriend. And he would fail most of his classes as a sophomore in high school, and he skipped 36 days of school. And the weird thing is here, he says he starts a volunteer fire department with his friends. Now, I know I have at least one firefighter that listens to this. I was friends with several of them when I was a police officer. I guess I still am friends with them. Um, so they might not be too happy with what I say here, but we're if you look through, and eventually we probably will do some cases where there are uh, volunteer firefighters or firefighters that are arsonists and whether it's some type of a hero complex in some of these disturbed individuals most firefighters are awesome people great people i'm not saying by by any means that all of them are uh, have issues but there are some of them that do have uh some issues and and have been found to be arsonists uh starting fires so they can then put out the fire and be the hero so i don't know if that was what was going on here with his fascination with fire and then you know, he gets to be the one that puts him out and then he becomes this hero i don't know uh just was really strange that at 15 he starts some civilian volunteer fire department with and it said with friends which i was under the under assumption that he didn't have any friends but Again, I'm just going off what I read in the source material. And at age 17, his father and him moved to a co-op housing project in the Bronx called Co-op City. Here he would engage in what's described as petty vandalism, continuing with his arsons, and continues to torture small animals. 
His father would remarry when he's 17, and David wasn't happy with his new with his stepmom, and she had a, a 25-year-old daughter, and it sounds like he did not get along with this with his stepsister at all. And so this is furthering kind of his bad relationships with women, I guess. And in 1971, he's going to graduate from high school, and he enlists in the U.S. Army. He passes his psychological and physical tests and chooses to join the infantry. Now, before I joined the military and even after, a lot of my friends didn't understand. So the everybody thinks that when you think of the army that everybody's a, a quote-unquote soldier, which they are, but they picture everybody being a combat fighter. And in reality, a very small percentage of the army is made up of the infantry, and these are your foot soldiers. Uh, these are your guys and gals now that will jump out of airplanes, that's airborne infantry, or repel out of helicopters, air assault infantry, or ride in vehicles, your mechanized infantry, or just your, your grunt infantry um, will be your, your main combat force that is that is just fighting men and women and the rest of the u.s army as i used to joke when i was in the infantry is there to support the infantry so all your artillery that is softening ground targets for your infantry invasion all of your cooks your transportation of supplies all that kind of stuff is built around supporting your infantry these are again the guys and gals that are going to be boots on the ground that take over an enemy position and hold it so that you can quote unquote win the war. So infantry, while it's the most basic of all the of the forces, it is your main fighting force and it's not everybody that joins the army is is in the infantry or it's a greater percentage when you're in say in the Marines. The, the Marine infantry is a much greater percentage of their force but in the army the infantry is a, a small percentage of, of the overall force and he's going to choose to go in the infantry and it's something i did too i had the option of doing several different jobs in the u.s army and i loved the outdoors and i wanted a challenge and i told my recruiter i wanted to do infantry and he tried to talk me out of it and he told me i had so many other options i could go with and there was a few times that I guess maybe I wish I had done something differently, but for the vast majority, I was I was very happy with my choice, and I got to see the world and make some great friends and have some crazy experiences when I was a young adult, so I don't regret it at all. But anyway, David is in the infantry, and his first duty station is Korea. And it's said everywhere that he excels as a soldier other than getting in trouble for stealing food from the mess hall, which I also found ironic because in basic training, you could get in trouble for taking food or having food you weren't supposed to have. But once I got to my duty stations, food was kind of not deemed as, I guess, as important. Now, this might be he was stealing actual food stores from like when he was on kitchen patrol or something along those lines you know bringing back cans of peaches or whatever it might be to his room and i guess i could see getting in trouble uh for something like that but he, he obviously doesn't get enough trouble he pr actually progresses through the ranks pretty quick to what's called the rank of specialist e4 so in the military most people come in at e1 uh in the enlisted ranks and that's just your private They'll work through E2, E3 is your PFC, your private first class, and then E4 branches off two ways. You have your specialist E4, and that's usually somebody who has shown some level of intelligence and can do a certain task well. And then you have your corporal E4, which is your very first form of non-commissioned officer, so it's your first leader. So. Some some guys will get recognized as kind of quote, the quote-unquote specialist in their job, but they don't have leadership abilities or don't see themselves staying in the military long enough to be leaders. And so they'll become specialist E4s, then others will become corporal E4s. Uh, he becomes a specialist E4, and he's nicknamed Wolf due to his excess of body hair. And he does go AWOL from time to time. Now, I had a friend of mine once that he 
I mentioned I had to do something. I had to go to my drill or whatever it was, or I'd be considered AWOL. And, and he thought AWOL meant going crazy. And because he waved his hands in the air like a crazy person when he said AWOL. And I said, what do you think AWOL means? And he says, being crazy. And I said, no, AWOL is absent without leave, A-W-O-L. So that's when you don't have permission to leave a base or do something and you do it anyway. It's also going to be in Korea that he has what's often thought of as his first and only sexual intercourse encounter. And this is going to be with a Korean prostitute and he's going to contract a venereal disease from her. And when I say that, I just, there's later on, it's going to talk about him having um, some sexual purity ideas. And there's a couple different sources that said that this was his only um, sexual intercourse uh, and that he, you know, contracted this venereal disease as a result of it. And, and it's going to, somewhat shape his mentality and we're gonna, we'll talk about that more later uh, during his time in korea david also experimented with a lot of psychedelic drugs uh, he tried mescaline and mainly lsd which afterwards friends would note a major shift in his personality the formerly precise and clear-headed david was now known to ramble incoherently and embraced more radical ide ideations uh, he signed one of his letters to a friend by crossing out his name and replacing it with the moniker Master of Reality. And at age 19, he's transferred out of Korea to Fort Knox, Kentucky. And most people think of Fort Knox as the place where America stores all of its gold, which is supposedly true, and I'm not going to go into any conspiracy theories. That's, this is not that type of podcast about whether or not there is or is not gold at Fort Knox, but basically the reason why the America's gold is supposedly at Fort Knox is because it's built uh, around the, the vault that supposedly holds the gold is built around uh, this military, or built on this military base, and military base is built around it. And it's actually home of one of the major armor divisions, the tank uh, divisions uh, of the US Army. So. Basically, if you want to protect something and make sure that somebody doesn't break into it and steal your gold, what better place to put it is uh, than a military installation with thousands of, of soldiers and thousands of tanks and, and weapons and that kind of stuff. And it's while he's at Fort Knox, Kentucky, he's going to start attending a Baptist church and praying because he feels empty inside. And by age 20, he's considered an outstanding and dependable soldier. He decides to become baptized as Christian, which abandons his Jewish faith upbringing. And his conversion to baptism was said to be the catalyst for his extreme views of sexual purism. And that's, again, something we mentioned before, and we're going to discuss it more in the next episode. Even though his life seems to be going, I guess, somewhat well for him in terms of he's deemed this dependable soldier he's going up in the ranks with the military he's continuing to set fires and we know this because he kept an arson diary detailing the fires so at the by the time he's at fort knox his diary claims that he had set 1411 fires to this point in his life now some of these might just be you know garbage can fires in alleys in new york or burning you know, some papers or, or something in, in an alley it doesn't necessarily mean that he tried to burn down you know over 1400 structures but he does definitely has this pyromania this this attraction to to fires and setting fires having signed a three-year enlistment david completes his time in the army in 1974 and is honorably discharged he attends bronx community college on the GI Bill and starts working as a security guard. And it's mentioned here that he's bitten by one of the guard dogs that the company has. And I didn't mention earlier when he was a kid, he was also bit by a dog. So this is the second major dog bite he's had in his life. But everybody at the company said he worked well with the dogs and didn't show any fear of them, which I found a little strange because I've never had a major dog bite in my life. and. I think if I did have one as a child and then one as an adult, I'd have at least some level of fear, especially from the 
type of dogs that actually bit me, but regardless, apparently he's not afraid of dogs uh, and works well with them despite these dog bites. And at age 21, he leaves the security guard field to gain employment as a taxi driver. And this is during the time period he's going to discover his birth name of Richard Falco. And this allows him to start the search for his birth mother. But remember, this is going to be an utter shock to him because he's been told since he was a young child that his biological mother died in childbirth. And so now his brain has to wrap itself around a totally new reality because he had spent his lifetime blaming himself for his mother's murder. And that kind of put his adoptive parents more as like necessary guardians of him. And now these necessary guardians, to him, they're going to be these liars that made him feel guilty about killing his birth mother, which gave him a completely false sense of responsibility around the death. And then now he has to accept that not only was he not responsible for his mother's death, he was an accident and was unwanted by his real mother and abandoned by his real father, I guess. There are ways to look at it. And so now it's 1974. As that year closes out, he continues to set fire and moves into an apartment in the Bronx, just blocks from Bronx Park. It's said in the beginning of 1975, David shoots a German shepherd, which was an escalation of his torturing of animals and a step towards attacking humans. And we mentioned that he tortured small animals, insects, that kind of stuff. He's, and we mentioned that he got bit by a dog twice, So, but he also apparently wasn't supposedly afraid of them and worked well with them. So shooting this German shepherd doesn't make sense unless it's an escalation of the, that torturing of animals and like i said a step towards attacking humans and in may of 1975 he's able to identify his birth mother elizabeth um, broder it also says also calls her elizabeth falco so i don't know if she kept her maiden name or she kept her married name Uh, she's described as both in sources but uh, David sends her a Mother's Day card, and this begins an emotional relationship between the two of them. It's later stated that David became extremely troubled by finding out the reason he was adopted, and he would struggle with the combination of the abandonment by his mother and the abject rejection from his biological father at birth. And one of the foremost serial killer experts in the world, a guy named Elliot Layton, described this time in David's life as a primary crisis. Now, I couldn't find the actual definition of primary crisis or how Elliot Layton used it. He used it in, I believe, his famous book, Hunting Humans, which is his research and and take on serial killers. But I can only imagine it basically... To say David Berkowitz is fragile at this point, I think, is an understatement. He's obviously had behaviors and traumatic experiences in his entire life that have pointed towards him potentially becoming this violent and dangerous person but he now goes through basically some type of a psychological crisis in which whatever maybe strands of sanity were were holding him together and not having him attack people this idea that his biological mother didn't want him and his biological father made his biological mother give him up i guess whichever way you want to look at that makes him an already lonely guy that is that has to go through this psychological emotional crisis And in June of that year, he turns 22 years old and continues to set fires. He leaves the taxi business to return to security work, gaining employment as a security guard at JFK Airport. And he once again is working with dogs and would later claim the guard dogs would talk to him when he was alone with them. And so a lot of his childhood and early adulthood is going to revolve around these dogs. And he's either working well with them or he's torturing them or he's supposedly hearing voices from them and 
He only works at the airport a few months before he quits and starts working for an air duct technic as an air duct technician for an air conditioning company. And with information gained from his relationship with his birth mother, he sends his biological father a letter in November of 1975. This letter would claim that he's depressed, but he would soon find out his birth father is deceased, so he's never going to be able to have any type of closure in his life in regards to what exactly happened with his birth father and around this time he claims he's hearing many voices and they're telling him to attack people so on december 23rd 1975 he commits his last recorded act of arson and he has lit a total of 1488 fires per his arson diaries uh, and I say diaries because this now takes up three notebooks. So he's got these details of, of these almost 1,500 fires that he's started in his life since a child. And on Christmas Eve 1975, so the next day after he records his last arson, David heads out into the evening hours armed with a hunting knife. He attacks a still unidentified Hispanic female who is able to fight him off and get away. And the reason that we know about this attack is because David would later tell police about the attack and he would claim he wasn't able to seriously injure the woman and police never took any reports from any women about being attacked by a knife-wielding man. So whether she was you know, some form of migrant worker or something where she was afraid to report to police uh, i don't know or maybe he wasn't able to injure her at all and she was just somebody who didn't report things I, I i don't know but basically the only reason we believe this happened is because david would later claim that that he did this attack but his second victim that evening is a teenager named michelle foreman and she was a sophomore at a local high school and David would attack her with a hunting knife on a bridge and her injuries were severe enough for her to spend a week in the hospital. And police did not have a suspect at the time and only learned of David's involvement during his post-arrest confession. So this would have been, you know, this Christmas Eve attack obviously would have been somewhat big news, but at the time it's just seen as this this random attack maybe it was an attempted sexual assault that's what police are thinking or a robbery gone wrong or something along those lines they have no idea that uh, that she was attacked as a part of of david's crime spree and it's said in january of 1976 david stops visiting his birth mother and his biological half-sister and he moves into a home in new rochelle which is just outside new york city and this home is owned by a couple named Jack and Nan Kassara. He signs a two-year lease and puts down a $200 deposit, which today would be about $1,000, and he purchases a rifle and four boxes of ammunition. He would start a job at the U.S. Postal Service making $13,000 a year, or roughly $70,000 a year today, which is not a bad wage for a single guy who's 22 years old. But the following month, he abandons his lease and his deposit with the Kassaras, claiming that voices like howling demons are bothering him. And so he's going to move to Yonkers, where he rents an apartment where one of his neighbors would be 63-year-old Sam Carr. And in May of 1976, at 22 years old, he makes a Molotov cocktail and tries to kill Sam's dog with the incendiary device. However, the attack fails. And I didn't know if it failed as in the Molotov didn't go off. It failed because he missed the dog. It failed for any other reason. It just said that he tried to kill Sam's dog and and the attack failed. And in June of 1976, he travels to Houston, Texas to meet up with an army buddy and purchases a 44 caliber handgun from him. And this is the gun he would use to commit his attacks. And this is mainly because he had been unsuccessful with his knife attack six months prior. And the use of this gun would also earn him the nickname the 44 caliber killer. So this is going to set the stage for a series of violent attacks by David on women and couples over the next 18 months. And so I left some space here for some final thoughts. So I know that was a lot of information. A lot of times these background dumps on these serial killers 
you know, it tends to be more information than it is true crime. But I think in this case, as I'm trying to relay that documentation of verified traumatic experiences along with aberrant behaviors, that combination is so prevalent in David's upbringing. And then you add into that the dynamics of this adoption, this this abandonment, the the lying, the the emotional toil that he's gone through his entire life. And again, none of this is going to excuse him for the behavior that he's committed so far or he's going to commit. It's merely just, if you look at all this stuff, the head injuries, uh, the arsons, the you know, the sexual issues, everything like that. It, it's one of those you call the perfect storms that is that is creating, potentially both creating a monster and unleashing him uh, upon the world. It's just everything is falling in place uh, for this to be, you know, a horrible uh, next 18 months. So... We'll get more into that, though, in the next episode. We'll break down the crimes that uh, David commits and offer some analysis of the correlation between his crimes and his upbringing. And, again, that's another reason why we dove so deep into his background is when we talk about the crimes and, and some of the, the, the victimology, what, what he is targeting we can link back to some of the stuff that he experienced either as a child or young adult uh, and and then kind of have a better understanding of of why he's doing what he's doing and then there's a lot of post-arrest stuff too with him um, that is worth i think diving into as well and we'll either get to that next episode or if it ends up being a three-part episode we'll get to it at some point here so All right, so stay tuned for the next episode in this series, and thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes, and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.